0: Welcome! You are listening to Mountain View Scattered. This is an audio companion to our weekly church gatherings. It is a way to stay connected while you are away and to learn more about our community, how we can best reach and serve it. I'm your host, Wade. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all again. Sorry it's been a while since I've been here. I even called Peter by the wrong name this morning since it's been so long since I was here. I think it's a year because I think the last time I was here was at Advent time. I honestly can't remember for sure. But be assured that we pray for you regularly at Mountain View on the other side of the mountain. We're grateful for this ministry. Uh, we are missing Pastor Tom and Nancy, but we're delighted to share them with you and trust that as they work with Pastor Wade and Tara that you will see this church fulfill the vision that is there to reach the community and to extend the witness in the community around us. I do bring you greetings from Mountain View. Uh, Tallop and his family, who have been here on a number of occasions, sent their greetings and love this morning. Want to want be, to be sure to pass that on to you. Pastor Mark this morning wrote me a note, said they're praying for us today and to tell you that he would see you next week, and he is really looking forward to that. So be assured that even though we may not see your faces, you're not out of our hearts or our minds as we think of you and pray for you and trust the Lord to work in us and in you to fulfill what he has commissioned us to do, and that is to make disciples among all of the nations. Just a word about the booklet. I heard this around Mountain View in Somerset West last week. Uh, people had them available to pick up, and they said, oh, I already have one. Well, you don't have this one. Everything in this issue is brand new. So don't just assume that because you have something that looks like this, that you have what's been carefully put together for this year, okay? So avail yourself of that, and we trust that it will contribute to your preparation for the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. It has become so distracted and distorted Uh, We we just want to get back to to what it really means. eh? This time of year, we hear a lot of discussion about different scriptures and uh, different references to the Christmas story. Probably most of the time during the early part of the anticipation season, uh, the focus is on Luke chapters 1 and 2. When the angel Gabriel visited Mary, or that she'd been appointed to be the mother of Messiah, than the actual birth event in Luke chapter 2. Or some may concentrate on Matthew chapter 1, where the angel comes to, to Joseph and says, Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. The child in her is conceived by the Holy Spirit, and both Mary and Joseph were instructed to name the baby Jesus. And Then, of course, the visit of the Magi in chapter 2, Where they brought the gifts to him. But I want us to focus today on one verse that is profoundly simple and simply profound. It's found in the Gospel of John. If you would like to turn to it, please, I want to read the verses in the surrounding context and then come to rest on the verse we want to consider this morning. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of man nor of the will of flesh, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Luke 1 Luke 2, Matthew 1, Matthew 2, all capsulized in verse 14, and the word was made flesh or became flesh and dwelt among us. The whole wonder of the birth of Jesus Christ is summarized in the reality that God himself became a man, that he might live among us, that he might show us more perfectly what God is like, according to verse 18, than to die for our sins and rise again, that you and I might become the children of God. I would like for us just to unpack this verse in the first half of what we want to consider today. And the first thing has to do with the fact that John says, we beheld his glory. Now, what does that mean? If you look at some of the stained-glass windows of cathedrals in Europe, as you look at some of the paintings from the Renaissance, you would assume that there's a shining ring around the head of Jesus. When he laid in the manger, there was this glow around his head. Or that somehow that halo followed him all the way through the teaching of the disciples and teaching in the synagogues and all of that. That has nothing to do with any kind of radiance or aura. Jesus didn't glow in the dark. In actuality, what it means is that Jesus shone forth or manifested in his life the very reputation of God. The term glory, as it's used most frequently in the Old Testament, though sometimes it does refer to a glowing light, the primary Use of the term, or the primary term used in translated glory, literally means heaviness or weight. We use that sometimes in our English vernacular today. I don't know how it is in Afrikaans, but if someone is a powerful person in the community, we say they carry a lot of weight. doesn't mean they're obese. It means they have a reputation that makes a stir among their peers in the community. They have a reputation that suggests they have a strong influence or they have the ability to exert an influence in a particular context, whether it's manufacturing or sales or or whatever it might be. They carry a lot of weight. And that's what it means in the Old Testament. In the primary use of the term or the term that is primarily used, it means the heaviness of God. It means the weight of his influence and so on. In the New Testament, it's a similar term, but it's a word that has more to do with opinion. Again, it's one's reputation that causes those around him or her to form an accurate opinion. That's why Jesus and, and others have spoken so vehemently against hypocrisy, because hypocrisy is to project an image, in order to cause people to form an opinion that isn't accurate. It's something that is worn on the outside to try to influence an opinion that is different from what one is really on the inside. But in the New Testament, the word doxa, from which we get our word doxology, has the idea of opinion, the idea of a reputation that causes people to form an accurate opinion. Hence Jesus in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father which is in heaven. Jesus is simply saying, I want people around you to form a right opinion of God. Do your good works so that people around you form an accurate opinion of God. Peter says the same thing, perhaps, with Jesus' words on his mind in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Live your life in the culture in such a way that those around you, even though they may not respond to your message, even though they may not respect your person, will still have the ability to form a right opinion of God. In other words, the reputation that one wears should cause people around us to form an accurate opinion. Not a facade, not a hypocritical idea, but an accurate opinion. Who we are on the inside should show on the outside, and what shows on the outside should manifest what's on the inside. And that's what John is saying. He said, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we perceived, we saw, we beheld, his glory, he brought to us an accurate representation of the Father. That's what John one eighteen says. He came to explain to us what the Father is like. So John is saying he was a man of integrity. He was a man of character. The perfection of his person communicated an accurate opinion of God. Not a pharisaical idea about a lawgiver, Not a Sadducean idea about God being generous and blessing with material wealth. Not a Roman idea of just another God among their many, but an accurate representation of God. Now, that's what John says. We beheld his glory. We saw his reputation. A man of integrity, a man of character, a man who told us, who showed us, who lived among us, as an accurate emissary of God. Hebrews chapter 1, the Bible says that God spoke in many ways in times past through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, who is the exact image of his person. So when we think about the first advent and the coming of Christ, we need to focus on Jesus becoming man and living among us in a way that expressed An accurate opinion of God. But what did they see? When they beheld his glory, what was it that they saw? Well, first of all, I believe they saw one who submitted eagerly. Hebrews chapter 10 says, As Jesus was preparing to step over the threshold of heaven into the world, he turned to the Father and said, Sacrifice an offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. I come to do your will, O God. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus submitted eagerly. And that submission was seen as he walked on the earth. John chapter 12, Jesus says, I don't utter one word that is not, first of all, sanctioned by the Father. He said, I don't even speak words that God does not allow me to speak. John 8, 29, I always do what pleases God. John 4, my meat, my food, is to do the will of him who sent me. John 9, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, because the night is coming when no man can work. And then Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, as he sweat great drops of blood, as he prayed in the garden, submitted, said, I am here to do your will. Your will, not mine, be done. He submitted eagerly. The second thing we know that he obeyed consistently. Hebrews chapter 5 says that even though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. That doesn't mean that Jesus was ever disobedient. But he learned he could sympathize and empathize through the sufferings that were around him and the things which he also suffered, the pain, the rejection, and all that he went through, to be a priest, a high priest, that was at all points tempted and tested, like you and I are, without sin. And he could go to the cross as the perfect sacrifice because he obeyed consistently. John, or excuse me, Philippians chapter 2 says, he was obedient unto God death, even the death of the cross. The third thing is he lived perfectly. I've already quoted from Hebrews that he is a high priest who was tested and tempted in all points like we are yet without sin. It is one thing for one person to die for another. It's one thing for a person to die for his or her own sins, but Jesus died for all our sins and he could do that to the end that God Outrage, wrath, God's righteous expectations, and all of that would be fully satisfied because the perfect man died for you and me. He lived perfectly. There was no charge that could be held against him. In fact, the only thing that brought about his death on the cross was the charge of treason. He has made himself king instead of Caesar. Even the charges against him under Jewish law couldn't stick. They had to bring him to the Roman court to be accused of a crime against Rome to die on the cross rather than to be stoned to death at the edge of the city because he violated Jewish law. He lived perfectly. We notice he loved unconditionally. The fact that he even came is because he loved. But probably my favorite passage is John 13, where the Bible says that Jesus was at table with the disciples to celebrate that last Passover before the cross. And the NIV translated, I believe, most accurately. It says in verse 1, Having loved his own, he now showed them the full extent of his love. And he went and died on the cross. Is that what it says? You no, know, it says he got up from the table. And he took off his robe and laid it aside. But he towel around his waist, took a basin of water, and knelt to wash the disciples' feet one at a time. It's after that event that Jesus said, I want you to love each other as I have loved you. He's not talking about the cross. He's talking about a willingness to stoop to the dirtiest task, to wash the filthiest feet, that during the day had stirred up the dust and kicked away the donkey and the camel dung, he stooped and washed their feet. And we're not surprised he washed John's feet, not surprised he washed Peter's feet, but even washed Judas's feet. He loved unconditionally. I'm not trying to exclude the cross. I'm saying that there are other activities of Jesus that demonstrate his unconditional love. And then, of course, we are commanded by Paul to walk in love even as Christ has loved us and offered himself up to God for us as a sweet-smelling sacrifice for sin. When John says we beheld his glory, I can't even imagine what all is running through his mind. I love the beginning of his first epistle where John says, the one that came to us, the one that was before the beginning began, we have seen him with our eyes, we have heard him with our ears, we have touched him in the flesh. And the New Testament language there is that John, the beloved disciple, the one who is the author of John 1.14, trying to capsulize some of the substance of the Incarnation, says, I have seen him with my eyes, and when I close my eyes, I can still see his visage as visibly and as thoroughly and as accurately as if he were still right here. John craved the presence of Jesus. And we might say today, that Jesus' image was etched upon his mind. He didn't have an iPhone. He didn't even have a a portrait on the wall. But he had an image of Jesus in his mind that could not be erased. He says, I can still hear his words. The the sound of his voice is still echoing in my ears. That's the grammatical uh, interpretation, understanding of those verses. We miss that in our sterile English translations. His words reverberate in my mind. I can still hear the tenor of his voice. I can still hear the inflection of his words. He said, I can still feel the coarseness of his robe as I leaned up against him that night at the Passover meal. I can still feel the warmth of his closeness. I can still feel the gentleness of his touch as he told me and my brother James, sons of thunder, to calm down and relax, and experience Jesus. This was a man who loved unconditionally, but further, furthermore, he forgave generously. We don't have to go far to understand Jesus' willingness to forgive. I don't know where your minds are going, but recently our pastor Mark preached from John 8, the woman taken in adultery. And certainly the evidence of Jesus' forgiveness is there, is it not? He forgives her for the sins of which she is accused, but he warns her, go and sin no more. That doesn't mean that if she sinned again, she wouldn't be forgiven. He's just trying to put her back on track, having experienced God's forgiveness. How many times did he forgive Peter? He tells Peter to forgive 70 times 7. I have an idea. Jesus, in the subtext that's not there, says, as many times as I've had to forgive you, Peter, you need to forgive other people. Always saying the wrong thing, always being in the wrong place, always coming to the wrong conclusion. And Jesus said, okay, that's just Peter. I forgive him again. The 70 times 7 hasn't been reached yet. So I'll forgive him yet again. And over and over again, he forgave. He forgave Thomas, his doubting in the upper room that day as he showed him his hands in his side. He forgave Mary Magdalene and cast out of her the, the, the demons. He forgave Judas, I believe, even though he was the son of perdition. And then on the cross, he forgave both the Jews and the Romans when he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus didn't withhold forgiveness. He forgave generously. He served selflessly. John chapter, or excuse me, Matthew 28, 20, verse 28. He says, the Son of Man came to serve. He did not come to be served. He came to serve. At the last supper when the disciples are arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom, Jesus said, you're thinking like a Gentile. That a place of oversight and authority and being in charge and all of that is the most honored place. You say, don't have a Gentile mindset. Rather, have a Christ mindset that says the greatest among you must be the servant of all. Jesus served selflessly. He confronted graciously. We look at Matthew 23 perhaps and when Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees and so on and calling them hypocrites, that somehow there was an absence of grace, that there was just this antipathy and and this outrage and Jesus is uh, about three steps from cursing at them and so on. I don't believe that was it at all. I believe Jesus was confronting graciously saying, you guys need to change and there's a way that you can change. Don't be concerned about the outside. Be concerned about the inside. When he confronted John and James' mother for coming to him and requesting the places of honor for her sons in the kingdom, he confronted graciously. All through his interactions with individuals, whether it was his disciples or his followers or those who came with doubt in their hearts and so on, he confronted them graciously. He didn't beat them up with a scroll, he confronted them graciously. Probably the most profound is that he died willingly. He died willingly. Whatever is the interpretation of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was not trying to get out of going to the cross. He said, That's why I came. I must do this. Remember when Peter rebuked him? When Jesus said, You are Peter. God has revealed this to you, but he says, we're not going to tell anybody anymore that I am Christ the King or the Messiah that Jews expect. Now we're going to talk about the fact that the Son of Man must go up to Jerusalem, be delivered up to the authorities, die, and rise again. And Peter says, that's never going to happen. More than once, Peter said, over my dead body is that going to happen. What does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You're trying to impede the purpose for which I came. The cross is my destiny. He died willingly. Hebrews chapter 12 says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He died willingly. But I believe there's more that we need to learn from this first lesson with regard to glory. We disciples are supposed to reveal his glory. See, his disciples in the first century beheld his glory, but there has been entrusted to us now God's reputation so we are to reveal his glory. Consider 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, John says, we've beheld his glory. Now we, beholding the glory of the Lord, or understanding God's reputation, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. John and Paul agree, and Jesus, I believe, has ordained the truth That when people look at our lives, they should be able to say, as John said, we beheld their glory. Glory as of the born-again children of God. Even to say, full of grace and truth. See, now it comes to us. Jesus is not walking among us. We can't be like John the Baptist. There is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Or like John the Apostle, we beheld his glory. We saw all of the elements of God's reputation perfectly manifested to us. No, now it is our responsibility to be Jesus in our spheres of influence. And Paul says the Spirit is working in us to make that happen to help us grow in grace, but also to move from one level of glory to the next so that we are improving in our radiance of God's presence. Now, be careful here. We are not supposed to reflect God's glory. Some people use the sun and the moon, that we're to reflect God's glory as the moon does the sun. But if you take away the sun, what is the moon? Just a dark, lifeless, cold planet where life cannot be sustained. Paul says in this context in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that was what Moses had. He reflected God's glory on his face, but that glory was diminishing. And to keep the Israelites from seeing the diminishing glory, he put a cloth over his face so they couldn't see that the glory was going away. But Paul says, you and I don't reflect God's glory. We have in us God's glory. We are not to reflect it. We are to radiate God's glory. And the Spirit of God, in transforming us into the image of Christ, is making it possible for you and me to be more and more consistent in exhibiting God's reputation rather than our own. What does that mean? Well, if you use the Old Testament terminology, it means that we're to be heavyweights for God. It means that we are to live in our culture in such a way that people around us form a right opinion of God it means acting as Jesus would doing what Jesus would speaking as Jesus would in order for them to form a right opinion not about us but about the God whom we call Father and Jesus Christ we call savior it means that our reputation needs to be one of integrity and character And there's probably never been a time when the contrast between Christians and culture is more vivid than today. I'm not trying to call attention to myself, just an illustration. I went to the petrol station recently. It was rainy and cold, and and I went there in the afternoon, so the young man who was waiting on me had been doing this all day. And I rolled down my window, and he he started to ask me a question, and I said, how are you doing today? And he said, uh, I'm doing okay, but you're the first person today that asked me that question. He said, most of the people who have come in here today, just tell me what to do and to get with it and, you know, so they can go on and do their thing. A simple thing is to say, how are you doing today? To me, that's what Jesus would do. And I try to make a practice of doing that. I encourage you to do that. Just to ask someone how they are says, I care about you. I'm not here simply to have you serve me. I view you as an equal. I appreciate what you're going to do for me. See, that shows character. That shows integrity. It's not a big thing. You don't have to graduate from seminary to do that. But that's what it means to radiate God's glory to wear his reputation instead of our own. So people could say, even as John did, we beheld their glory, the glory as of the born-again children of God, full of grace and truth and other things as well. Let's, Let's unpack this. What should be seen? First of all, I think it should be clear that we submit eagerly. As Christians, we submit to authority. We may not like the authority over us, but we submit to them. That's what Peter says. We submit to government with whom we may disagree. Now, Pastor Tom and Wade and I have a government in the United States to whom we pay taxes and so on. um, We may not like all that goes on across the water, but we still pay our taxes. That's part of our responsibility to submit to them. Living in South Africa, we submit to the government here. The laws that are made, the rules that we must follow and so on. We submit to those in authority over us. And Peter says, we're to submit to those authorities and the laws that they make. And he was talking about Nero when he wrote his letter. He also says we're to submit to our employers. You may not like the person for whom you work, but we respect them because they're in authority over us. In fact, Peter goes on to say in the modern vernacular, even those who are jerks, submit to them. Wives submit to their husbands. We submit to spiritual authorities over us, our pastors and so on. And we submit eagerly because we recognize that by means of submitting to those in authority over us, we are ultimately submitting ourselves to Christ. This, chapter 3, Paul tells the slaves to submit themselves to their masters as those who are working for the Lord and not for an earthly boss. Secondly, to obey consistently. What does the Bible say? That's what we do. Let me encourage you, it is not God's will that I be healthy, wealthy, and happy. I may have illness. That may be God's will. When my sweetie was diagnosed with cancer, she said, the only reason I have cancer is because it's God's will. And I'm happy to have cancer if God can use this in someone else's life. I'm not making her bigger than life. I'm simply quoting her words the afternoon that she was diagnosed. Sometimes we're not healthy. How many of us can say that we're wealthy? Probably none of us in this room. God has entrusted certain amounts of money to us we're to be good stewards and so on, but he never promised us wealth. He never promised us continued happiness. Sometimes there may be sorrow, but when I obey consistently, God has promised to honor that obedience. That means doing whatever is right even if it doesn't feel good, even if it gets me in trouble, even if I pay a price for standing for what I believe in obedience to God's word. I, I tell the truth instead of a lie. I pay instead of steal. I forgive instead of holding a grudge. Obeying consistently, that's what Jesus did. And that's what we're expected to do. We are expected to live righteously. <laughs> In Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul talks about being lights in the world of darkness, he says the light is exhibited in three dimensions, goodness, righteousness, and truth. See, Paul is saying, this is the reputation I want you to wear. When you are among those who are living in the darkness, let the laser beam of your righteousness, your goodness, and your truth penetrate their darkness. As an evidence of the radiance of Jesus who is in you, or to live as Jesus did. He said, I am the light of the world, John chapter 8. But Matthew 5, he said, You are the light of the world. And that comes when we live righteously, or to love unconditionally. We've already looked at Jesus' words. I want you to love one another as I have loved you. Interesting, the Old Testament says, love your neighbor as what? Yourself. Well, sometimes you may not love yourself. Or sometimes you may have a high opinion of yourself. The measuring standard for how we love our neighbor in the Old Testament context can be very subjective and very fluid. But Jesus simply sets up the standard In fact, he lifts the bar so high, he says, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. Even washing the feet of those who will deny you, Peter. Even washing the feet of one who would betray you, Judas. Even washing the feet of one who would doubt you, Thomas. We are to love unconditionally. That's the way husbands are to love their wives. That's the way parents are to love their children. That's the way we're to love one another and the way that we love God in Christ. We're to forgive generously. In the Old Testament, forgive so that you can be forgiven. The New Testament, forgive as you have been forgiven. In fact, Ephesians chapter 4 suggests it's a sin. It's allowing the devil to get a toehold in our lives when we don't forgive like God has forgiven us. You know, carrying grudges is a heavy burden. It weighs you down. It robs your joy. It can give rise to a root of bitterness. The only person enslaved by an unforgiving spirit is the person unwilling to forgive. If someone sins against you, even if you can't forgive them, they don't care. They just go on with their lives. You and I are the ones caught in the grip of unforgiveness. And you know what that does to us? It sidetracks us from being the children of God, able to exhibit Christ in our world. Because rather than hand a blessing, we harbor the spirit of bitterness. We're to serve selflessly. Galatians 5.13, don't use your liberty as an occasion to serve the flesh, but in love serve one another. Confront graciously. There's the idea that if someone is out of step that I must sort them out to use our cultural vocabulary or idiom. But what does Paul say? If you see someone overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, confront that person in the spirit of meekness considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And we're to die willingly. We may not be be called upon to die. We have to be willing to die, do we not? Jesus said, take up your cross. We may need to give our lives for the Savior. I pray that doesn't happen to us in South Africa, but in fact it may. It's happening in other parts of the world. And those who love Jesus, those who are going to exhibit his glory, those who are going to reveal or radiate his presence and his reputation, die with his name on their lips, even as Stephen did, the first martyr of the church. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld his glory, the reputation of the Father, full of grace and truth. They beheld his glory. We are to reveal or to radiate his glory. He came as the incarnate God. We are to incarnate God's truth and reputation. During this anticipation, let us transfer the attention of the world around us from an animate baby in a manger the flesh and blood Savior who came to save the world. Father, thank you that you've entrusted to us your own reputation. Help us to walk as Jesus did, to live as Jesus did, to speak as Jesus did, that we might truly be the Spirit-filled, incarnate truth in a world of falsehood, unbelief and satanic lie. Help us, Father, to remember it's not about us, it's about you. It's not our reputation, it's yours. And our desire is that when people see us, they may behold your glory and that they may desire to come to know you personally, whom to know is life eternal. Thanks for listening, and remember that you were brought into the church by the saving work and person of Jesus. Also, that you are sent out to tell everyone about him. We look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Mountain View Scattered.